Thank you, Brother Alex, for uh, sharing those things. And I think one of the things that came to my mind straight away was that church actually being conducted outside in, in the open was that church is not about the bricks and the mortar. It's actually about the people. And that's what, we're, that's what we are. We are a church. Even if we didn't have this building, we would still be the church of God. And isn't that wonderful to, uh, to know? Well, tonight, yeah, you got me, uh, one of the old charge keepers. Uh, so I, um, it's been a while since I've actually preached in front of the whole church. Uh, so um, tonight's not going to be actually preaching so much. It's going to be more of a, a Bible study, uh, really on um, a part of the book of James. Because uh, back in our uh, last year with our seniors, we, were, we uh, did a complete Bible study from uh, James 1 right through to James 5. And so the part that we're actually looking at tonight is actually part number 12. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, as charge keepers, we tend to work a little bit more on, on what we call island time. Uh, we might get one or two verses done and then we'll leave the rest till the week after and, and so on. But that's not necessarily going to be what's going to happen tonight. Uh, yes, I see Danny looking at his watch just to make, just to <laughs> remind me to make sure. Um, so, but uh, tonight we're actually um, going to be talking a little bit about as you can see here, taming the tongue. And uh, I'll just get my little clicker out because we're going to need that. Um, and uh, taming the tongue is something that has is, is particularly on my mind in particular because I don't know about anybody else, but I have a bit of a trouble with taming my tongue at times and, and so on. But before we actually get into that, what I'd like to do is just to give you a little bit of a, a rundown. And one of the things that we do like doing in Charge Keepers is we like to have a little pop quiz. Uh, so, uh, what I was just wondering about is uh, particularly the book of James. Can, can anybody uh, put their hands up or tell me who actually wrote the book? Caleb. Spot on. Absolutely right. And can anybody tell me what, uh, to whom James was actually writing? Caleb. Yeah, he was actually writing to those that were Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who had actually been scattered after the diaspora. Now, in that time of what they call the diaspora, and that, of course, is after Stephen was stoned, there was a tremendous persecution that was going on with the actual church itself. And so many of the Jews actually scattered. And, of course, what they did, they naturally took the gospel message with them and, of course, it eventually went to places like Samaria, it went to places like Phoenice, Cyprus and Antioch, just to name a couple of different places that it actually went to. So everywhere they went, they took the gospel with them. But what do you think the purpose of James' writing was? Why do you think he wrote the epistle to those churches? Considering the fact that there was an awful lot of Get them all on the same page as well. Uh, but also, too, he wrote to them to encourage the readers, to encourage the people uh, and consi to consistently live out their faith. And that's primarily what uh, James is uh, very much about. And he, he also encouraged them to have joy and patience in the face of trials and to let their good works be a demonstration of their genuine faith. He made it very, very clear that it wasn't uh, works that actually saved a person and that we know that very, very clearly, uh, that works are what we do after we are saved. It's, it's the fact that we're called to do good works by the Lord himself. 
Now, as we went through, of course, in these Bible studies, we discovered uh, in some of the chapters there were various themes that were actually running through some of the verses. So in verse uh, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, you had the marks of true religion. And then in uh, 5 to 8, you had, uh, if anyone lacks wisdom, it said, ask of God who gives liberally, which means we have a wonderful and merciful God who, who gives wisdom liberally. Um, the other thing that that reminds me of too is that true wisdom doesn't come from our own minds. True wisdom comes from God. It is actually a gift. And uh, if we go back to Ecclesiastes, Solomon says exactly the same thing, that true wisdom is that that is from above and not from uh, our own selves. Uh, in verses 9 through to 12, we saw that God is not a respecter of persons. And then in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 1, uh, we saw very clearly that God can't be tempted at all by evil in any way, shape or form. And then, of course, in verses 17 to 20, we learnt that everything we have is a gift from God. That's including our worth. Everything we have, our home, our possessions, our money, everything. In fact, it said there that God is the father of lights and so he wants to provide for us, his children. And uh, all we need to do is just simply be prepared and uh, willing to, uh, to uh, receive what he wants to give us. In verse uh, 21 to 27, we have guidelines for being a doer of the word and not a hearer. How many times do we, can we hear the word and not actually necessarily do it? Then he goes on in chapter 2 and he talks about the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. So, for example, one of the one of the examples we used was a person who came through comes through the front door. If they're wearing a pair of tattered jeans or or a, t uh, a pretty dishevelled type T-shirt, and then somebody else walks through that door in a, a three-piece suit, what do we do? We don't. We certainly don't look and and run after the person in the three-piece suit uh, at the same time as ignoring the person in the uh, with the T-shirt and the dishevelled jeans. Uh, in fact, it said very clearly, uh, James very points out to the, the people that he's writing to that God himself is not a respecter of persons. And uh, of course, then in verses 14 to 26 of chapter 2, we talked, it talks about faith without works is dead. So it's no point in us saying, yes, we have faith if we are not prepared to actually live out that faith during the week and, uh, and every day during the week. So... That brings us up to uh, chapter 3, which is where he spends around about uh, 12 verses talking about taming the tongue. Now, what I want to do is just move along here a little bit. Have a look at these pictures, and I'd like you to... Uh, does anybody relate to any of these pictures? Can you relate to any anything that you see there? Uh, the, the bank teller's just sitting there, and you're steaming, absolutely steaming. You want to, you want to say some things. And yes, sometimes we have found ourselves actually in a situation where we uh, feel the, the emotions and the, the, the heat rising up in us. And the, the dangerous thing about that is before we actually realise it, our mouth is going off at an alarming rate of knots. Anybody experience that? I think we'd be lying if we said we didn't. Worse still, the danger of this is that the words that are coming out of our mouths are going, are being literally thrown at somebody that doesn't necessarily deserve it. Now, we probably think to ourselves, well, we're good church people. We, we, we don't do those sorts of things, do we? Hmm. Now, 
as we go through here, we see that hot on the heels of taking several verses to explain to his readers the great need to let their works be a demonstration and evidence of their faith they have in Jesus. Now, James starts dealing with another issue that had become quite a problem in the church or the churches of the area. One of the big problems that the churches of the area that they had had was the problem of people backbiting. They were, they were fighting amongst one another. They were cursing one another. They were doing all sorts of things that they should not have been doing. And he deals with the problem that all of us have, even in the modern-day church. Would we agree? So where does it begin? The interesting thing, if we actually uh, have a look at this, um, is we can ha- go to actually verse 1 of chapter 3, and if you open your Bibles there, if you've got them there on chapter 3, uh, it says, My brethren, be not many masters. Okay, so he starts off with this term, my brethren. Now, the interesting thing there is that he's basically including himself in that, isn't he? He's, he's incorporating himself in all of these things. And even though he was the actual pillar of the church, he doesn't start off with a rip-roaring into the people. He actually starts off by calling them my brethren, his brothers and his sisters in Christ. And immediately we see this aspect of self-inclusion, as I said. He then gets right down to it and he says, be not many masters. Now, it's an interesting statement because what does it mean? I mean, the the problem, of course, with uh, people when they get to a point where they think they know everything about a situation, they think that they can then judge and that they can actually be the final authority. And it is very easy to get into a situation where you can say, well, it's either my way or it's the highway. Is that not true? But, and these are the sort of things that were actually happening in the churches that he, were actually, that he was actually writing to. In short, what he's saying here is that we are not to lord it over anyone whatsoever with our words or our actions at all. And if we can see there's two reasons for this. If we look at the last words of chapter 3, verse 1b, it says, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. When we set ourselves up as judge and jury, we must also be aware that one day we too are going to stand before God. And the one thing that I want to have is a good judgment seat. I don't know about you guys. But I, I, the one thing that we all want is a good judgment seat when we stand before God. Jesus himself said, Judge not that ye not be judged. For what, judge, what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured you again. We must be aware that if, if we're going to judge people, the judgment that God uses against us will be pretty much the same as what we're judging people with, but it'll be a whole lot more severe. So we need to be very careful on the way we, we look at things and, and the way we, we judge people. Secondly, the other clear reason why uh, we are not to act as a master is we need to remember that, hey, we're all sinners. We're only saved by the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to remember that that's another reason why we shouldn't master be a master over, over people. Now, James carries the idea through and proceeds to give some examples. He says, for many things, in verse 2, for many things we offend all. 
in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. None of us can say we're perfect, can we? No, we can't. Those who would seek to be self-justifiers are in fact self-deceivers. What we all have to come to grips with is what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, where he talks about the, where he says, And why beholdest the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but, that, but considerest not the beam that is in your own eye? We are all guilty of that at times, aren't we? James then proceeds to tell his readers that if any man has the ability to offend not in word, then this man is to be considered a perfect man. So if you cannot offend anyone, then you must be pretty perfect. In fact, James uses the word bridle so in terms of, of this whole concept. And it leads into the next couple of verses in verses 3 and verses 4 where he gives a couple of examples. We're going to skip over this fairly quickly. Um, but uh, in verse 3, for example, he talks about the bridle or the bit that goes into the horse's mouth. Who here has been on a horse at times? Anybody? Yep, I've been on a horse. Now, without that bridle and bit, what can happen to the horse? Hmm. Yeah, I don't even want to think about it, actually, um, because the horse could actually get away. Because That bridle and bit might only be a very tiny little instrument, but my goodness, it has a tremendous amount of power over that horse, doesn't it? And it keeps them in line, keeps them on the, on the right path. The same, he said... Uh, two in, uh, in verse 4 where he talks about the aspect of a, a ship's helm. I won't read the verse, but we, we, he's talking about the fact of, of uh, a, a rudder of a ship. Now, the rudder of a ship, and we've seen some pretty big ships today, haven't we? But the actual rudder that guides that ship, how big is that rudder? It's not that big, is it? When you look at the, the size of the whole ship. And, of course, he was speaking to people that would have known what he was talking about because many of these churches were actually in seaports and many of the ships that they saw in those seaports would have carried at least 200, 300 people at any one time. But they were, they were big ships, but their rudder was small. And depending on which way the captain moved that rudder would depend on which way the ship moved. And so even though it was small, it had a tremendous amount of influence over the whole ship. So both the, the bit and the helm are only small instruments, yet they hold tremendous power and influence. This then leads us into the next verse where James gives the analogy. He says, even so the tongue is a little member, it's tiny, and, but it boasteth in, and it boasts great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Okay, so we might just go to the next slide and a little fire. So you're out in the, out in the bush, okay, you've, you've uh, used a match to start a little tiny fire, but then you've forgotten to actually put that fire out. And this can be the actual result. And of course, what he's, what he's saying here is that the, the tongue, although it's such a small little thing like a match, that match can start something that will literally destroy everything in its path. And that's, that's one of the, the, the greatest dangers of the tongue. If we don't get a bridle on our tongue and if we can't keep our tongue in check, then we can set a whole fire ablaze. Is that not true? Yeah. In fact, 
in essence, this is what James is saying in verse 6 as we go further into the actual uh, into the verses. James is describing the danger and the consequences of an unruly tongue. The tongue, as Matthew Henry aptly points out, has such abundance of sin in it that it may be, as James states, a world of iniquity. And it is this sin and iniquity which is held in the tongue that defiles the whole body and others. And Jesus said himself that it's not what you put into your body that defiles you, but it's what comes out of your mouth. That's what defiles you. Think of what the unbridled and unruly tongue can do. It pollutes the mind and the heart of the person speaking, but it also pollutes the mind and the hearts of those that are around them. It can ignite passions that within a person of immoral or violent behaviour and it can draw the whole body into sin and into guilt. The tongue leads man into snares which are insufferable to themselves and to others. The simple truth is that Satan is called, in Scripture, what's Satan called? He's called a liar and he's called, the, but in fact he's actually called the father of lies. He is also called a murderer and the accuser of brethren. And what proceeds out of his mouth are absolute fires of hell itself. So it's understandable why James uses the words he does in verse 6 when he says, and setteth on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. Whenever a man or a woman's tongue is employed in the ways of Satan, their tongues are set on the fire of hell. They're defiling themselves and all those around them. Now, James gives a contrast and shows how difficult it is to tame the tongue because he actually uses the animals that we see around us. And he says in verse 7, For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. Here he reminds his readers of the fact that all the beasts of the earth, they're subject to us, are they not? In fact, that's what it said in Genesis, did it not? It said in Genesis 1.28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. But then he contrasts this with verse 8 where he says, But the tongue... Can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And in this one statement, James actually points out to his readers and hearers of the epistle that even though man can tame all the animals of the earth and have dominion over them, we still can't tame our own tongues. The simple answer is that man cannot tame himself. What requi it requires a supernatural act of grace and assistance. Only when we come before God in humble obedience and prayer, acknowledging that we in and of ourselves have no power to tame our tongue, can we come to the point where we realise it is only with the guidance the protection, the assistance of the Holy Spirit and continual watchfulness and pains on our part that we're actually able to keep our tongues in check. 
And then he goes on in verses 9 to 12, he talks about, uh, he gets down to the nitty-gritty of the problem in the actual churches themselves. And what was clearly obvious was that, you may not be able to see this slide all that well, but I hope you can. It, uh, what was clearly obvious is that the people in the church, they were coming together on Sundays and they were worshipping and they were praising and they were honouring and glorifying God. But the problem with these churches were that the rest of the week they were actually going out and cursing one another. Dangerous thing. So after stating what was happening, James forthrightly says, My brethren, these things ought not to be. In fact, Matthew Henry says it well. I don't know whether you might know the uh, commentator Matthew Henry. Uh, He says it well when he says, How absurd is it that those who use their tongues in prayer and praise should ever use them in cursing, slandering and the like? If we bless God as our Father, it should teach us to speak well of and kindly to all who bear his image. That tongue which addresses and with reverence the divine being cannot, without the greatest inconsistency, turn upon fellow creatures without reviling and brought, with brought, with brought, reviling and brawling language. So in other words, how can we possibly come to church on Sunday and then during the week curse somebody from Monday through Friday? That's why James says these things ought not to be. Simply put, their piety on Sunday was disgraced by all their actions and lack of, clar- uh, lack of charity during the week. To emphasise this point, he, even, uh, he goes and he uses some examples again from nature. He says, can a fountain send forth both sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree bear olives, berries? Can a vine bear, bear, fig, uh, bear figs? And no fountain can yield salt water and fresh at the same time. So here James is actually appealing to their sense of logic. He's actually trying to get them to think about what he's actually writing and what he's uh, speaking to them. He's saying, consider the impossibilities in nature and then apply this understanding to your lives. If If we can't understand or if you can't understand that it is impossible for a fig tree... Sorry, if you can understand that it is impossible for a fig tree to bear olive berries, then how is it possible for you not to understand how they need, to, how you need to be consistent in your walk? It's basically what he's saying to the, the people of the churches. The conclusion of the matter primarily is that we need to recognise the dangers of the untamed tongue and the damage that it can do to ourselves and to others. I tell you what, I've had to keep myself in check at times. I mean, just ask Julie. <laughs> I have a, b- a bit of an untamed tongue at times and it's, it's not a good thing and I have to ask forgiveness for that. We need to recognise what lies at the base of all gossip and unruly talk is the very sin nature that we still wrestle with and we all wrestle with a sin nature. We need to humbly come before God on a daily basis and ask that we, he put a guard on our tongue and to strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak only those things which uplift and encourage and strengthen those around us. It makes you feel a whole lot better when you encourage somebody, doesn't it? 
I think of the, just to finish off, I just want to read you from uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25. And it says there, it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But then this is what I want us to really understand tonight. But exhorting one another. And so much the more as we see the day approaching. And I think we would all agree that with what's going on out there in the world today, we are very, very close to the Lord's return. I can't put a date on it. I can't put a time. But uh, with what you see happening around there, and shouldn't we as a church be more and more exhorting and encouraging and strengthening one another rather than doing things like backbiting, getting angry with one another, and, and so on. So we need to, you know, these are just a few words and I hope they've been an encouragement to you. Uh, but let's encourage one another to do this, to exhort one another. And uh, basically that's our little Bible study for tonight. That was part 12. Maybe some other time we might share the next one or two parts. <laughs> but uh, it, I hope that it's been a little bit of a blessing. Um, so if I could get a couple of guys to bring the, uh, bring the prayer sheets through. There you go. We, did, we weren't on aisle in time. We actually finished pretty well. Not too bad. Okay. So if I could just grab one of those uh, prayer sheets, that would be fantastic.